All right. Well, this morning, let's go ahead and turn over to the book of Colossians. That's where we started uh, last week, started going through this book, uh, taking a look at some of the principles of uh, Christianity with it, addressing some things with the Christian walk, uh, the Christian life, uh, addresses some false doctrines that are in here, and some practicality uh, that we've uh, already kind of begun to, to see. And uh, we, I'm just going to read the first uh, few verses again uh, to see uh, how far we can get in this passage, because uh, um, uh, there's, there's a lot here. There's, a, there's, a, there's an immense portion that's here. We'll read down to verse eight in Colossians chapter one. It says Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace. Uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and know the grace of God in truth. As ye are, uh, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, for who, uh, excuse me, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again that we have this time and opportunity to come here this morning. And Lord, I just thank you again for what you've given to us uh, in your word and your Holy Spirit to teach us. I pray, Lord, that as we look at uh, this area of being a testimony, being a witness, um, seeing the desires that we should have for one another, uh, what our prayer should be for each other in this passage, that, Lord, we would take these things to heart. I pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, uh, dutifully uh, listen and dutifully obey and heed your word in our lives, that we would please you, honor you, and give you glory and praise. I pray that we would do that this morning, Lord, as we've come together to meet, to worship, to learn, and to fellowship one with another, that this time, Lord, would be honoring and pleasing to you. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in Colossians chapter 1, we got down there through there. Um, to uh, uh, probably about verse uh, 5 and 6 is where we kind of started leaving off a little bit there. And we talked quite a bit about uh, how Paul is thankful for him. This is one of the churches that he didn't start. Uh, somebody that was a uh, product of his ministry went out and started this, uh, Epaphras specifically. And he's been faithfully ministering and he's been faithfully communicating with Paul What's going on there? The growth that he sees. And, and I, I, I want to again emphasize this, uh, from this perspective that when we start talking about our witness and our testimony, many times we, we think of it as, okay, well, I need to make sure that I'm avoiding sin. I'm avoiding sin. I'm avoiding sin. But our testimony is so much more than just avoiding sin. Uh, if you spend your life avoiding sin, uh, you're not going to accomplish all that God has for you. Because again, as we talked about repentance, repentance isn't just about turning from sin. The key important part about repentance is, is turning to God. That's the important part. Uh, people can turn to sin and turn to something else, but repentance is turning to God. Not turning away from sin, but turning to God. So when we see this passage here, uh, where he's addressing their testimony, addressing the witness that uh, they've had here, it, it did something that 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 testimony and the witness that we have about doing those things which are right, following Ephesians two ten, is is very specific in its product, what it produces in our life, and it should produce an effect in another believer, uh, specifically what we're talking about here, one that if you will prompts them to pray, prompts them to be thankful to God for. The, the, just the relationship that's there, the acknowledgement that God has brought us together and, uh, the encouragements that's there and the edification that's there. And that's exactly what our testimony should be doing. That's how we go about edifying. 
It, it, it disheartens and discourages Christians so much when they hear of another Christian that has fallen or another Christian that has engaged in sin or a Christian that refuses to listen. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's a heartache for the Lord and it is definitely something that affects the body of Christ. So when we were looking at this here and we see what their testimony was in verse four, that they had a love for all the saints, that they had a faith in Christ Jesus, that they were exercising that belief in God's word and they were demonstrating it, comes out in the form of love, a love for God uh, overall. But what we see here is we see in this passage this progression of what the gospel did for them. And if you jump down to verse 6, which is about where we left off, when he was talking about the word of the truth of the gospel, he said, which is coming to you as is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. The gospel of Jesus Christ will produce a fruit. Now, it's very clear when we start talking about the parable of the sower and the seed, when the seed is being cast out there and the heart that receives it. And the heart can be choked out with so many different things. It can be hard-hearted, it can be snatched away, or it can grow. And obviously, we want it to grow. We want it to bring forth and multiply. We want it to, to, to do something. You know, again, as I've said many a time, uh, um, people in churches will get an idea that outreach is only something that is an arm of the church. Uh, church-organized outreach is a good thing. It should happen. But outreach should be something that is done on an individual basis. Soul winning shouldn't be necessarily always organized by the church. It be, should be something that is always at the forefront of your mind in every action and everything that you do. It should be sheep producing sheep. That's the mentality. We go out there, we witness, we're the ones that invite and things of that nature. Uh, I've, I've heard many, many, many a pastor lament and, and, and say, oh, my church is not growing. My church is, is shrinking. My church is, you know, uh, um, whatever it may be. And one of the problems that they will, they'll always point out is they'll just say, well, we just don't have enough outreach opportunities and outreach events in our church. Inevitably, somebody that is an older, wiser pastor will point out and say, well, are your, is your congregation, the people in the pews, are they out there individually soul winning without the prompting of, of, of the church itself, the organization itself? Because that's where the growth occurs. So when we take a look at what's going on here, we see that this gospel is, is, is to produce a fruit in our lives. It produces a fruit of, of being a witness and a testimony to the lost, but it also produces a fruit in the lives of other believers. Your, fruit is not just lost souls. Fruit is also what we do and how we engage with one another. We, we, we have to have that. Uh, encouragement. You know, he talks about in the book of Hebrews, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. And, and there, there should be a desire for that. But every action and interaction and even what people hear about us should always be something that is for the glory of God. For his uh, for his work and what he's done. The gospel of Jesus Christ, he is the author and finisher of it. He's the alpha, the omega. He's the beginning and the end. There's nothing we add to that. He paid for everything on the cross, and it's by the power of his resurrection we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. So we understand that concept, and we begin to exhibit that in our lives. We begin to promote that, demonstrate it, whatever, uh, you know, description you want to say about that work. But what we should see is we should see that there's a progression that happens. We look at this and we see what has happened here. 
you know, he, he, there's this ministry that Paul had. Epaphras was part of that ministry. He received, he began to grow, and he takes it upon himself to go to a place that needs the gospel. He goes there and he teaches and bears fruit. There's fruit that's bearing fruit that's bearing fruit that's bearing fruit. That's a physical thing that we see in a spiritual sense. We grow fruit, right? Take any fruit. Let's just, um, for the sake of, uh, of, of fruit, uh, let's go ahead and take, um, oh, I don't know, a kiwi. You take a kiwi and you cut it open and what do you find inside? Green sour yumminess. Or unless you get the golden ones, the yellow ones, which are a little sweeter, and uh, but they're supposed to, I don't know. They say they're supposed to have better... I, kiwis are kiwis. Kiwis are God's little blood scrubbers, by the way. You uh, you got a problem with your cholesterol, you got a problem with your triglycerides, eat some kiwis for about a month, you know, two a day for five days out of the week, uh, go back in, get tested, and you'll find uh, the doctor will look at you and go, what did you do? <laughs> Because everything has changed. Uh, it just shows how easy those little numbers can be manip- manipulated by uh, proper nutrition. Uh, same thing with uh, the Word of God. How easily things can be manipulated with a proper nutrition and how easily they can be manipulated with a bad nutrition. Uh, but what we find is that in those uh, kiwis, we've got those little seeds, those little black seeds. And you can crunch them and you eat them and they're, you know, there's no problem with that. But if you take those seeds and you harvest them and you pull them out of that piece of fruit and you go and you begin to grow and you grow another uh, um, uh, plant that uh, produces uh, kiwi fruit, uh, what's going to be in those kiwis? Seeds. You take those and you begin to use those and move them around and do some things with them, uh, um, putting them in ground and getting them to grow and, and they produce kiwis. What's going to be in those kiwis? Seeds. And this is the process. This is what the gospel does. And as he's pointing it out here, he's saying uh, it, it's going to bring forth fruit. And it did it in them, and it's going to do it in the rest of the world. And we see that. We see that. That's why That's why there's such a, a, an aversion to the things of God, to the things of Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ will change a person's life. It'll change a person's life. Did the gospel of Jesus Christ make an impact in your life? I mean, you you, you think about, and again, just speaking as a fool, where would we be without that? Yeah, dead in a grave, um, in hell, uh, possibly. Uh, in prison, uh, possibly, you know, whatever, living a, a, a life that is just, um, just horrible and things of that nature, uh, just, just hating life, hating everyone in general. There's no love. There's no compassion. There's no nothing. Uh, I mean, we can, we can go there just living in despair, living in despair. But we think about what the, the, the power of the love of God did in our lives and how it changed us. And how it continues to change us, we see very clearly why the gospel is so important. Because it is a communication of God and his love, according to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But what we find here in this passage is he says, it's going to bring forth fruit. It's going to bring forth fruit. And he's talking about it because it was fruit from someone else, from someone else to someone else. And he's saying it's going to bring forth fruit in your life as you go out and you witness and you're a testimony to others that are out there. And he's saying that even that fruit has come back to Paul. Now you think about this for a second. Here he is talking about Epaphras. And if you look at what he says in verse 7, how he describes Epaphras, he says he is a dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ. He's faithful. He's continuing to do what God has told him to do. He's believing it and obeying, right? So what we see here with Epaphras in this desire that he has to be faithful to Christ and faithful to his word has produced something. 
And it's produced that work that is in these uh, individuals at Colossae. But what does it do? It goes back there and we see that it says in verse 2 that they were faithful. One faithfulness to another faithfulness. Faith to faith to faith. There's the faith of the Son of God when he died on the cross that Paul hears of. He's converted. He moves to tell Epaphras. Epaphras then moves to tell the Colossians and so on and so forth. And that comes back because now Paul is hearing about what they've been doing and he hears that number one, they've been faithful. He hears about their testimony so much so that it prompts fruit in Paul's life of prayer. It prompts fruit in thanksgiving and praise to God. That love that they've been demonstrating, which is a fruit, obviously fruit of the Spirit, right? Comes and it has an impact now in Paul's life who's never even met them. Never even met these people. And that's the fruit of the gospel. It continues to do this. It continues to be fruitful. Go over to a couple of places. Take a look at the book of Matthew very quickly. I want to point some things out that that Christ himself pointed out. And then uh, further along, as Paul points out, Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, and he talks about, in verse 15, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth uh, not uh, bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast in the fire, whereof by their fruits, or excuse me, wherefore by their fruits, you shall know them. And here he is talking about you know an issue with false doctrine. I'll tell you this: one of the main reasons that people fall susceptible to false doctrines is because they have not been receiving the right kind of fruit, or the fruit that they've been receiving is corrupt. You've got all sorts of corrupt fruit that's running around out there today. Any of you have a, like a particular store that you go to that you know that that's the only place you're going to get your produce from? There's one place I'm not going to mention their name necessarily because I don't want to, you know, badmouth somebody on, uh, uh, you know, on, uh, uh, you know, the live stream or anything of that nature, but there's one place that we will not get produce from. We just won't. We go and every time we're tempted to go get produce from there, we get produce from there and we've had it so that we were like, okay, we're going to buy a bell pepper. We buy a bell pepper with the intent of using it in two days for a meal. We go to pull the bell pepper out of the fridge. The bell pepper has now like over the course of since when we bought it within about less than 48 hours has gone from a nice firm piece of bell pepper to withered, wrinkly, and moldy. Like that. You're like, well, you're not supposed to put it in the fridge. Okay, I don't care. We don't, we put it in the fridge. We don't put it in the fridge. We put it on the counter. It, it just like that place you don't get produce from. All right. We don't because we don't, we, we see that what happens to it. It's, it's not good fruit. They don't, they, they don't have a good produce manager picking the fruit. But there are places you go and you get the good fruit and that fruit lasts a long time and you continue to enjoy it for a long time. You're not having to eat the fruit, you know, in two days and then pay for it for the rest of the week. But, but you, you understand what I'm saying is, is there, we know where to get a good fruit from. But we're supposed to be producing a good fruit in our life. And I'll tell you this, the best tree that has ever been found is Jesus Christ. When he said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. 
We're supposed to bring forth fruit. We're supposed to bring forth fruit. Take a look over at chapter 13 of the book of Matthew. Again, seeing some principles of fruit. Matthew chapter 13 and uh, verse 8, again, talking about the parable of the sower, but I just want to point out in verse 8, it says, But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Now, now, people will focus on the fact, well, there's a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. And they'll start talking about, you know, ranking of, uh, of, of, uh, if you will, rewards and all sorts of stuff. They, they go on and on and on and on and on about, look, they get distracted by the intent of the verse. The context of the verse isn't the quantity of fruit. It's the quality of fruit. What does it say? It brought forth fruit. Why? Because it was in good ground. It was in good ground. Not everybody's going to produce the same amount of fruit. Not everybody's going to have the same amount of opportunities. And it's not necessarily because people are, are, are more wicked or have more sin or something of that nature or somebody's more righteous or more, more holy or whatever it may be, but, but, but here's the issue. You're going to be provided opportunities to go and sow that seed. There's going to be opportunities to, to bear fruit in other people's lives. What kind of fruit are you going to produce? What's it going to look like? How's it going to be viewed? When somebody hears about it, what's it going to do in their life? This is the object. It's the, for, it's the good ground. It's the heart that has received it and it's bringing forth that fruit. It's going to be productive. Regardless of the amount, there's going to be product there. There's going to be product there. Take a look over in the next book, in chapter uh, chapter 4 of the book of Mark, chapter 4 and verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 20, <clears throat> again, I want to point this out, and this is exactly what the Colossians did, talking about the gospel. And it says, and these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it. And bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, some hundred. So in a parallel passage to what we saw over there, he's saying this all comes down to how we receive the word of God. This is probably one of the most important things that a Christian can begin to understand that Paul's talking about. The Colossians received the word of God and it was producing fruit. Well, how did that happen? That's because Epaphras received the word of God and it bore fruit. Because Paul received the word of God and it brought forth fruit. That's the important part. We start talking about the heart. We start talking about bringing forth fruit. We start talking about testimonies and encouragement. It's all going to come down to what do we do with the word of God? That That is and will always be the biggest question for mankind. I mean, I, I, I think about it for a second. If Jesus Christ is called the Word of God, it's all going to come down to what did you do with his son? Did you believe him or reject him? Entrance into eternal life is all going to be based upon that. He said he's the way, he's the light, or the truth, the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by him, right? So he's already established that. And if he's the Word of God, are we going to listen? Are we going to heed? Are we going to follow it? Now, we if you're sitting here today and you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you received it, right? But there's got to be still that heart that is wanting to yield more. It's a desire. It's a desire. And it all goes back to the core of the tree and that fruit. And what I mean by that is if he is the vine and we're the branches, we are going to be producing the kind of fruit that he wants as the vine. Not every branch produces the same, but we have to receive from that, that vine as branches what he tells us to produce. That's how that branch knows how to produce it, right? That branch isn't going to know how to produce it on its own. 
It has a connection with the vine, the, the core vine itself, and the roots. So as we continue to look at this, let's go over to the book of John, John chapter 4, seeing some other important principles about this. Specifically, you know, as we've been talking about the, 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 the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel of Jesus Christ should, should not only produce a, a, um, uh, uh, you know, obviously salvation, but there should also be the product of how we're working with other individuals, uh, whether it's the lost or the, 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 the church or however it may be or whoever it may be. The one key thing that we really have to understand about this is that fruit is supposed to have a specific result. In John chapter four, John chapter four, and I want you to, to, to take a look here in verse 36. It says, and he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto eternal life. Both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. This is something that Paul was doing. Yeah, he describes it over there in first, uh, first Corinthians chapter three. Somebody planted, somebody else watered. God gave the increase. The sower and the reaper are rejoicing together. Why is that? Because they're working together in unison. This again is a product of what the gospel does. The gospel of Jesus Christ should bring people together, not divide them. Well, why do we know that? Because Ephesians 4 talks about unity. That's the intent behind the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 goes into further detail talking about breaking down that middle wall of partition, bringing both together in one body. That's the concept. That's the purpose. In John chapter 15 and in verses 1 through 8, again, we see this prayer here, this desire, where again, he's talking about that vine that I mentioned. And in verse 1 of John chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bringeth forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. And no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. If a man hi, uh, abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. Men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. <clears throat> If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. Fruit, So shall ye be my disciples. This is God's desire. This is Christ's desire. That you bring forth fruit. And this is exactly the same desire that Paul had. Paul had a Christ-like mind, and that Christ-like mind is to bring forth fruit that people would be abiding in Christ. Not abiding in the doctrines of Paul. Not abiding in the doctrines of, you know, whoever else is out there. And trust me, there's all sorts of other people out there. It's like every theologian in the world, and anybody that wants to call themselves a theologian or think they're a theologian, has got some sort of YouTube channel or some sort of a blog or whatever it may be. I know those are kind of old and antiquated and outdated today or whatever it is that they're using to communicate, and they're trying to communicate certain things. But a lot of times it's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They just want to heap disciples unto themselves. And what does it do? Makes that person worse than they were before. Worse than they were before. But what we find here is that this is God's desire. This is God's desire for our Christian life, is that we would bring forth fruit. Going back over there to Colossians, in Colossians uh, chapter 1. We see there, as he talks about what... uh, what uh, uh, this fruit that they've been bringing forth. And he says in verse 7, he says, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. And we find that this is supposed to be what we are doing. 
Him being a faithful minister, meaning he's out there doing something to help these people, and he's doing it by giving them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not giving them something physical, but giving them something that comes from Jesus himself, that eternal life. Showing and pointing and saying, here is eternal life. Here is forgiveness of sins. Here is this gospel where that hope exists. And we find here in verse 8, as he continues to do this, Paphras sees this growth in a person's life. And I want to emphasize this in verse 8. Verse 8 should be a call for every believer. In verse 8, it says, Who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit? When somebody hears about you, again, I want to make sure that we're, we're not talking about how you are viewed in the eyes of man. What I'm talking about is, does your life give glory, honor, and praise to God? Love in the Spirit comes because he first loved us, according to 1 John. So what we need to be seen as is demonstrating the love of Christ, the love in the Spirit. And Epaphras looks at these Colossians, sees them growing, and all he can see is their love for Christ, which translates into the love for the brethren and doing what God has asked them to do. Not for themselves, but to please God and to also be an impact in somebody else's life. That it's not all about them. But it's about the care that is necessary for one another. Again, one of the biggest reasons why uh, 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 false doctrine creeps into people's lives is because they have lost their love for Christ. They've lost their love for the brethren. They isolate themselves. They have no fellowship. And when I talk about fellowship, I'm not just talking about sitting down and eating together. I'm talking about sitting down and talking about the Word of God, communing in the Word of God. Those things are absent in that person's life. And you'll find that that person will isolate themselves. And the only reason that they actually reach out to anybody is so that they can tell them about their special little doctrine to try to suck them in. But they don't fellowship with that person either. There's a problem. Every Christian's testimony should be this. It should be that somebody else is going to declare your love for the Spirit. Not self-declaration, but somebody else does it. Somebody else does it. Somebody else goes and looks at a person's life and says, you know, and, and talks about somebody else. Look, I will tell you this. It's okay to talk about people. But don't sit there and badmouth and murmur and complain and, 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 and just, you know, generally diss them. You know what you do? You look at the person's life and you say, man, I've really been noticing a lot of growth in that person's life. Praise God. They're making some good decisions. The words that are coming out of their mouth are, are exemplifying Christ and his love in the gospel as you're talking with somebody else. Not sitting there and going, oh, did you hear what such and such did? Oh, they're such a wicked person. No, it's not about that. It's not about that. It's about a demonstration of who Christ is. Demonstration of his glory, power, and honor. Take a look at verse 9. We'll continue down through here. And this is a much larger section here. And this section goes from verse 9 all the way through uh, down to verse 15. So we'll read that. He says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, 
strengthen with all might according to his glorious power and all patience, long suffering with joy and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the, the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. I'm sorry, it goes a little bit farther than verse 15. It goes down to verse 18. It says, For by a him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And we see he is the head of the church. Uh, excuse me, and he's the head of the church, uh, the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now I want to, to, to stop on verse 18 because it clearly makes it known who this life is about. Not the preeminence of ourselves, not the preeminence of our reputation, but the preeminence of Christ. Because of what he's done and who he is. So as we back up a little bit further, we find here that there are several things that he talks about uh, in this. There's about six of them that he um, desires for the Colossians. He hears their testimony. He hears that they're growing. And he says, I want to see this kind of fruit in their life. Because this is the good fruit that we're going to see. And I want you to see what he goes through and he identifies. That is desire for them. The first desire is that we find verse 9, that they will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Second one we see is that they might walk worthy unto the Lord and all pleasing. Third one is being fruitful in every good work. Fourth thing is increasing in the knowledge of God. The fifth thing is being strengthened with uh, all might. And the sixth thing that we find is giving thanks Under the Father. These are the things that Paul desires for Christians. And I'll tell you this, this is what he's praying for. If you ever want to know how to pray for a person, Paul just outlined it for you. Paul just outlined it for you. He said, you'll get somebody that might come up to you and say, hey, I want you to pray for me may not be something specific. It may be something specific. Pray for that specific thing, but also pray stuff like this for them. Pray that they will grow. One of the key most important things that you can do for, for another Christian is pray for their growth. Don't, don't do the prayer of, oh, God, make their car break down so that they'll learn how to have patience. No, 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 no. Just stop, all right? You don't see Paul talking about that and saying, oh, I'm praying that God's going to bring some fiery trials in your life and make your just, your life so miserable that you have to turn to God. No. Let's not, let's not do that, alright? We see here him seeing their love and him demonstrating his love, his desire for them. And what do we find here? He says, I, I, there's a few things that I want to see in your life. And the first one that I want to focus on here with this testimony this testimony should always yield this praise. It should always have an a, a, a effect on somebody. And it should always have this effect of a desire for prayer. We see that in verse 9. It says, for this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. There's Paul just going about his business, doing whatever he's doing, whether he's in jail or he's out, whatever is happening. Epaphras comes and says, man, you got to see this church at Colossae someday. Why? What are they doing? Do I need to write them another letter like the Corinthians? He's like, no, 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 no. Man, they love God and they love the saints and they're faithful and they're, 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 they're combating some pretty serious, uh, false doctrines and some other issues that, uh, with a spiritual walk. But, but man, they, they, they're, they're really growing. They're really growing. Paul hears that and he just, he's encouraged by it. He's encouraged by the fact that the, the gospel is, is, is continuing to demonstrate fruit. He gets excited about it and he starts praying, man, I want to see fruit on their behalf. He starts praying all these other things, these desires. But I want you to understand something. It, it, it prompted him to pray. As I said before, 
your witness should always prompt people to pray. Not to the point of where they look at you and go, oh, man, I need to pray for that guy. Woo! You know, not not something like that. But prompt them to go, wow. Lord's really doing a work in their life. Lord, please continue. Lord, please let their heart just stay soft. Lord, please don't let them fall victim to, to anything that's out there, the temptations. Lord, continue to guide them. Lord, continue to direct them. Be earnest in that prayer. And what do we find here? We find the same thing that this is what Paul's doing. He says, we're not going to cease to pray for you. They, we heard it. They started praying. They started praying. And here's what they began to pray. What the desire is. What we'll, what we'll call here is Paul's desire, but this is, this is more than Paul's desire. This should be the desire of every Christian. Why? Because this is God's desire. This is what God's want. And I want to point this out, and even though I refer to it as Paul's desire, the reason I say that is because it's Paul that's communicating these things that God has put in, in, in the word for us, but it matches and aligns with scriptural principles of what God desires for us. I want you to see this here. The very first thing that he talks about in this, and he says, in desire that you might be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The first thing that he wants here is he wants them to have a good idea about what God's will is. And and, and not just to kind of have a, a general understanding but to have a true, if you will, a, a, a close connection with that will. I want you to see here how he begins to describe it. He says, in desire that you might be filled, filled with the knowledge of God's will. Not, not, not just kind of, sort of, know. Oh yeah, I know like one or two verses about God's will. There's so much more than one or two verses about God's will. And even if you were to do a word and phrase study on God's will, the will of the Lord, His will, anything like that, and you're going to find, you're going to find a lot of verses. You're going to find hundreds of verses. But I will tell you this, one thing that you will find out about uh, God's will is that it is throughout this entire book. God's will is always communicated in this book. So the one thing that we know is that God is desiring for us to be filled with that. To be filled with the knowledge of it. Not just in a a casual acquaintance, but to really truly know it. And, and, And that's an important thing. Because again, some people don't know the will of God. They couldn't find the will of God. Oh, a lot of times people have this weird understanding about the will of God. They think that the will of God is going to be manifest in some sort of signs and wonders and things around them and stuff like that. I'll tell you, that is a dangerous place to be. person goes around and starts praying the will of God. Oh, Lord, if it's, a, if it's your will, I want you to hit me in the head with an acorn today. I'll find an acorn right now and start throwing it at people. What? You know? (laughs) I mean, again, that's not, that's not how you divine the will of God. That's not how you find the will of God. Somebody wants to know the will of God? Well, let's start looking at it from scripture. Let's not pray for a sign in the sky. Lord, if it's your will, pray that I get stuck on traffic on I-5 as I'm going across the bridge. That's a sure thing. And I'll tell you, people will pray that way. Lord, if this is your will, and they create some sort of uh, convoluted structure that is only that they know that they can manipulate so that they can get what they want. Well, it's God's will. Not necessarily so. Not necessarily so. You manipulated something. You know where you're going to find God's will? You're going to find it in His Word. If you're not in the Word, you're not going to find it. 
So the knowledge comes from here, from this book. And I want you to notice here how he continues to talk about this. He says, in desire that you might be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There are some people that have a general idea about the will of God is, but they could not implement it in their life if, it, they, if their life depended on it. Because they don't have wisdom. They don't understand the application. They don't understand the spiritual impact. They may only see the physical. And sometimes I will tell you this, a lot of people and a lot of Christians today, and, and, and I was one of them, have just a physical understanding of the Word of God, but don't have a spiritual understanding of the Word of God, specifically regarding His will. I remember as a young man sitting there wrestling with what the will of God is for my life. Lord, do you want me to be a photographer? Lord, do you want me to be a pharmacist? Lord, do you want me to be a doctor? Lord, do you want me to do this? Do you want me to be a a law enforcement officer. Lord, do you want me to go do something else with my life that doesn't fill your will? Uh, well, he definitely doesn't want that. And I spent so much time looking for the physical will that I never understood the spiritual will. I never understood what he wanted for me to do first, which was to grow in him. And I will tell you this, if you're seeking the will of God and you're looking for the will of God in your life, and you're looking for something specific in that physical thing, what does God want me to do in this situation or with my life moving forward? I will tell you this. First, get your spiritual understanding of what the will of God is for you right now. Because the will of God is not a future thing. The will of God is an immediate present. It's right now. In everything, give thanks. Immediate present. Not give thanks in the future. Right now. Don't wait for a blessing to come and then give God thanks. Give thanks now when you don't even have the blessing. Be content if you never get that blessing. Be thankful for what you have right now before you start saying, well, Lord, I'll give you thanks if you give me this. That's not the will of God. That, that, that that's, that's, you're trying to manipulate God. And I'll tell you this, God cannot be manipulated. When we try to do stuff like that, it backfires. Big time. But here he is talking about this, and I have to mention this. He talks about two things, or three things here that Solomon often referred to, right? Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Where do those three words appear a lot in Scripture? The book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs. And I will tell you this, a lot of people will take the book of Proverbs and they will only apply it in a surface level, shallow, fleshly idea. The book of Proverbs, as he said, is dark sayings, meaning that you have to get in there and search it, and you find that there are spiritual components to every single thing. It is not just a book of common sense. It is a book of how to live a life that is pleasing unto God. And you have to sit there, and you have to take it, and you have to chew on it, and you have to study it, and you have to meditate on it, and you have to pray over it, and you have to think about it, and you have to ask questions about it, and you have to discuss it with other people, and you have to really engage in the book of Proverbs because of how deep it is. I don't think anybody's ever, I've never read any commentary that has exhausted the book of Proverbs ever. A lot of the times it's just been surface level. But it's so much more than that. Solomon's father, David, wrote something. Turn over to the book of Psalms. We'll, we'll, we'll get into this a little bit more detail, but I want you to turn to the book of Psalms and we'll start off kind of, if you will, talking about this subject. Um, we'll get into to more detail. Psalm chapter 111. Psalm chapter 111. <clears throat> 
He says he wanted them to be filled with all the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And I want you to see here when it starts talking about that wisdom in Psalm chapter 111 and in verse 10, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good understanding have they that do his commandments. His praise endureth forever. So right there, we've got two of those things just coming right out of the bat that, 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 that Paul was talking about. And what is it all centered around? The fear of God. The fear of God. One of the condemnations of the nation of Israel is they did not fear God. They did not fear God. You realize that Lucifer doesn't fear God. Why? Because he thinks he's going to be God. So right here, David is communicating and saying, look, it's going to start somewhere. You ever wonder where Solomon got that wisdom from? That little nugget? From what God taught David and what David taught his son. And we see it right there in verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Next week, we'll start talking about that and what Solomon wrote with it, how this comes into play. Because again, this is all about the will of God. To understand the will of God, you've got to fear God. To understand uh, 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 the the wisdom behind it, you, you have to set yourself aside. The fear of God is humility. The fear of God is putting yourself in a position where you are not challenging him. Fear of God is something that is a lot more important than what a lot of people realize. And we'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll come back for 11 o'clock service here in just a few minutes. But uh, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for all that you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that you just continue to guide us and direct us in your will and in your word throughout this day and, Lord, through our lives. Thank you again for those that are here. Pray, Lord, that you'd be with those that are still sick and bring them back to us safely, uh, safe and healthy. And I thank you again for all that you've done. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.